0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz interview series with legendary jazz saxophonist and flutist Lou Tabakkan. Over the course of our conversation, he talked about his start in Philadelphia and his move into playing with the best in the business, like Tal Farlow, Don Freeman, the bands of Cab Calloway maynard ferguson joe henderson chuck israel's thad jones and mel lewis and the great clark terry then he talked about a move to la to play with doc severinson and the tonight show band and on dick cavett's television show and he talks about the beginnings of the band that he formed with his wife the toshiko akiyoshi jazz orchestra he had many many stories and insights wisdom and tales to tell the neon jazz and they were told so please dig this interview my friends
1: Thank you for taking some time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in here. And nothing too extensive, but just kind of an idea, snapshot, so to speak, of your activity, projects, tours, anything that's been going on lately with you.
2: Okay, lately, I guess the first thing would be I have a new CD. Officially will be released in February. It's called Soundscapes. It's my trio. First one in a little while few projects. February, we have to put together the big band, Toshiko's big band, for a special concert at, uh, used to be Allen Hall, it's now Apple Hall. So that happened on February 16th. I have a couple gigs in New York around my birthday time. Then off to Europe, April, April, in Paris, uh, Brussels, Vienna. Possibly Budapest, and then to uh, Japan with a duo tour of Toshiko. Uh, September, end of August. September is my uh, annual Japanese tour with my trio, and um, we'll be doing also. We'll be doing the uh, Monterey Jazz Festival with uh, Randy Brecker as guest. So that's that's basically a snapshot.
1: So let's get back to your roots in Philadelphia. Talk to me about your childhood. What what happened to give you this love of music and of specifically jazz?
2: Uh kind of interesting. I don't I come from a you know, I don't come from a musical family. So it's like uh but I decided I for some reason, in junior high school, I decided I wanted to play something just I thought it'd be nice to do anyway. Um, so the school had a program where they they would loan you an instrument. The only thing I could get was a flute, which was weird because, you know, nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I thought maybe a clarinet, but I, at least I knew what that was. Flute, I didn't even know, hardly knew what it was, to be honest. So I got it, and I fooled around with it a little bit. And basically, when I went into high school... Fifteen years old, I guess. I don't know. I heard, you know, uh, people jamming. You know, and I would play in the orchestra, and I hear people jamming. and I thought that was really hip. And I had a, a a neighbor who was a jazz fan living lived next door to me. We, in Philadelphia. We lived in a row house, and next to me was a little older, I guess college age guy, and he was into jazz. He let me listen to uh, his records. I thought it would be hip. and Anyway, at the age of 15, I got a tenor saxophone, and uh, I started working on it. I had a sound in my head that I wanted, and I was able to actually get fairly close in a relatively short time, like in four hours. I had a semblance of a sound, and from there, it was trial and error. (laughs) A lot of, uh, you know listening to records and whatever I could afford those days, you have to buy a record and it was expensive to have any money. So couldn't buy a lot of records, but you could actually shop for them. You can actually hear them in a the store before you bought them. <laughs> it's like you could read the liner notes too, of course, <laughs> yeah. not like, you know, vinyl. So anyway, that's how it started and in one influence to another. And, uh, and then actually, after a few years, I became interested in the flute. You know, I, I had been kind of playing it, but I had bad teachers, and I wasn't very good. But um, I did go to a conservatory because I couldn't. I had to major in flute. I wasn't very good, but uh, my last teacher was very hip, and he was the first flute player of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he he showed me some stuff that, some very basic fundamental stuff that I could work on, you know, the rest of my life, basically, and I started to listen to uh, flute music, mostly classical recordings. I wasn't, uh, I, I became attracted to the flute as a special thing, special case, and I I'm doing everything really quickly. <laughs> you know, The flute, the, the saxophone was my exploration and hopeful expansion of the tradition. Yeah. And the flute was having to create my own tradition because I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think it made a lot of sense to play the same stuff you play on the saxophone, on the, you know, on the tenor, on, on the transfer to the flute. It didn't make any sense, so... I tried to create my own language and my own world of uh, narrative playing. And that's basically what I've been doing for the last 60 years and you know, you know, <laughs> trying to get it right. Hopefully I get it, you know. I, I can't quit till I get it right, so hopefully uh, I'll be around long enough to get closer.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, in the early years it mentions in your bio that Al Cohn and Coleman
2: Hawkins were huge influences. That's not quite Act quite accurate. Al Alcone was my first influence because all the white saxophone players in Philadelphia were big Alcone uh aficionados, so, and I so I would ask them, I would talk to them, and they would tell me what like Frank Tabbieri was one, and he he said I'll get this record so I get that record, and I was attracted to a certain way that he played. He was my first for first kind of hero. Then it was, uh, and Sonny Rollins. I heard Sonny Rollins, and I got attracted to that. And of course, Coltrane. I used to emulate Coltrane, and I realized that after hearing a lot of other, you know, saxophone players, especially white saxophone players, trying to emulate Coltrane, I said, "Boy, that's pretty stupid." You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense to try to be someone else I, I do this it's kind of like the method acting thing you get on the bandstand and try to imagine someone else's feelings so uh basically after, at that point I asked the, was a trombone player by the name of Leo Fogel in Philadelphia who had a record collection and I asked him to you know play some stuff for me and he played me all all the great tenor players and it was a revelation because I'd, you know, I'd heard uh, the normal stuff, you know. I, you know, I, I, like I said, I was into uh, Coltrane and uh, Rollins. Of course, everybody heard Stan Guest and, you know, the main people who were more popular. But I I hadn't really heard, you know, the Giants. So, Percy played Lester Young and, you know, that was, wow, what a revelation it was. I mean, how do you not like? classic Lester Young and Don Bias, I couldn't believe, you know, the sound and the actual technical expertise and, you know, amazing playing and played all, you know, Ben Webster, another thing, and, you know, Tragic Beauty and I heard all these players and it was, it was, and then he played Hawkins and Hawkins, I couldn't get Hawkins. Yeah. Hawkins was too difficult. Hawkins was too beyond anything I had ever heard in a sense, and I just—I just couldn't. I was too young and not sophisticated enough. But then, as years went on, like the light—you know—the the light bulb went off, and I said, "Well, that's—you know—that's it. That's the source of the whole thing." And then, when I would listen to my hero, uh, Sonny Rollins. I could hear, I could hear, I, of course I could hear Hawkins, but I could also hear so many other influences. You know, I could even hear True Berry, and I could hear, of course, Lester and Bird. And, and, and it, it reinforced my, you know, conviction that the only way to eventually find your own voice is to, you know, listen... And try to absorb—not necessarily—you don't necessarily have to transcribe, but absorb the elements that, you know, the great players had. And like uh, you put it in a pot and you mix it up, and all of a sudden you, your own recipe, whatever your own uh, style, emerges. And because nobody comes from uh, from nowhere. I mean, the closest was probably Hawkins, who had the hardest job. But anyway, that's. That's basically it. So it's not actually correct to say my first influence was Al Cohen and cohen a It was a big progression and, uh, you know, <laughs> passed that on and, uh, quickly. But well, that's basically, uh, and then you know, and by the time you're 40, something happens and all of a sudden you start to realize that you do have your own voice and you begin to accept your idiosyncrasies, which in the past... You try to eliminate. You know, you have this vision of this kind of perfect reality, and and you kind of try to you try to eliminate your little personal quirks and stuff. But eventually, you realize that that's that's who you are, and you you embrace it as opposed to uh, destroying it. So that's I always tell younger players, you know, like the way you end your note. Is your signature is like a painter it signs a painting when you end your end a note that's your signature so all the great players have their own nuance at the end of a note like you know of course like, like Hawkins, Bird all, you know everybody has a special signature so embrace that and try to make sure you have enough air to uh, let that happen so so basically that's in a nutshell and I you know I went through a lot of different uh, phases and, and influences and I, you know I grew up and started playing in the 50s mid 50s and and then then there was like out music you know we used to call it you know real acid jazz not what they call it now it's, they agreed to find it but you know we to totally play out totally out and was involved in that, and I was trying to learn how to play. And then I was, I was trying to develop parallel motion in a sense of listening to older stuff and dealing with uh, quote unquote newer stuff. And because if you haven't, I try to tell young players if, if you if you think that saxophone started, you know, jazz tenor started with uh, John Coltrane, you're you know you're really stupid and as far as they go back to as far as hank mobley they think that's you know brutes but if you go back farther you hear a lot of stuff that you know can really teach you new directions and it if it's if you haven't heard it it's new so uh it's it's, it's very important to check out the history get a little ideas about different ways you can sound uh, different concepts there's a there's a sound check of uh coleman hawkins 1939 that they kind of played a snippet they had a snippet of it on a um a new york times uh article about someone who had done recordings you know live uh and performance recordings, and they found them, and they played a little bit of Hawkins playing Body and Soul. They played three, at least three courses, maybe four, supposedly. But if you listen to it, and he's really mad at the owner for some reason, he, he got into a conflict with the club owner, and he starts playing. and He's playing all this stuff. He gets to the bridge, and he plays like what they, what Ira Gitler. Termed sheets of sound, Col- Coltrane's approach, and where you just you just play the scale of the of the of the, of the, of the uh, chord that he was dealing with. Hawkins did that in 1939. It was kind of scary. So there's nothing new. It's just how you deal with it. There's only 12 notes, and Charlie Parker said you're only a half step away from a right note. I mean, it's like it's like. So it's very important to investigate. You don't have to be a uh, a museum person, but just to investigate and get some inspiration and ideas, and you develop a repertoire of feelings. And like I used to play, sometimes I play and I'm not doing too well, and you know, it's one of those days, you know, and doesn't seem to be working. And then all of a sudden, I'll play a little little something and say, well, that's Lester or that's Hawkins, and then I get. I inspire myself in a way. I say, well, I, there is something, you know, there is something kind of spiritual in what we do, and we are connected, and you can you can get inspiration uh, in, in certain ways that you know you don't expect. That's the tenor saxophone, my tenor saxophone world, my flute world is developed in parallel motion again. Uh, like like I mentioned, I I'm really into the flute and I keep on working at it and the sound is the most important thing to me. The sound of the flute is very special and it's it's not a it's like it's it's a minor jazz instrument to be honest. It's basically because of the it's you know lack of real volume. It's it's microphone dependent most of the time. And so it's like even even in classical music of famous pedagogue Marcel Moïse said the flute is a minor instrument. In classical music in relationship to the say the piano and the violin. Um so in jazz it's even a less important instrument. But uh I try to find enter into different worlds and try to tell stories and paint pictures and uh try to improvise more in that direction once in a while I play a little something's closer to bebop but, but basically not and in fact recently actually September 15th I did a uh, I did a duet with uh, uh no no performer, N O H, Japanese no, a six hundred year old traditional theater place that I play in in Jizuoka, um The owner owns the last Shogun's Garden, and he heard my uh, the second tune of my new album is dedicated to him, and it's very kind of you know. Japanese influence and anyway he heard it and he got very excited and he he had a no stage built on his on his on the on on his garden like on the uh, koi pond you know so he uh, invited some no people and I performed a duet from Hagoromo totally improvised on my part the dance was set, and it was, was quite exciting, and also was uh, no rehearsal and just did it, and it was a, kind of a big, big hit, so um, I'm looking for other directions to go into, you know, and utilize what I've been working on all these years, so my, my flute world is uh, is very special to me, and uh, I I try to work on both of them.
1: I'm going to delve a little bit more into your history here. After the Army in the mid-60s, you made your way to New York and you played with some big people at the time, tal Farlow, big bands of Cab Calloway, Joe Henderson, Thad Lewis. What was it like to get to New York and to really dive into that extreme level of talent and play that was going on at the time?
2: Well, basically, uh, well, the Tal Farlow thing is I was still in the Army. <laughs> I was in New <laughs> Jersey, and uh, he would let me sit in when he... Yeah, came out of retirement. Then I when I I got out of the army I I did a bunch of organ trio gigs and saved up some enough four hundred dollars to be exact to New York. So I wasn't near Asbury Park I was like stationed at Fort Mama, so anyway, I got out of the army and saved up four hundred bucks and moved to New York. Found an apartment the first day, believe it or not. Or just by going on the uh, the uh, classified section. But anyway, I'm I'm a little bit laid back, so I forced myself to go out and, like, expose myself, so to speak. In fact, <laughs> I, when I played with Tal Farlow, when I sat in with Tal Farlow, Don Friedman was the piano player, and he said, yeah. You know, he told me to go to this place It's called the Dom. It's in St. Mark's Place. And uh, I think Tony, Tony Scott was in charge of the thing. It was mainly a jam session world. But, I mean, it was amazing. Uh, Philly Joe Jones was playing drums. It's kind of a pretty heavy jam session. So, anyway, I went, first night in New York, I went down there. <laughs> and I go, and I said, uh, you know, is, can I sit in? So Tony Scott gives me a dirty look and said, well, I can't just let anybody anybody play. And, and I said, "Well, you know, Don Friedman told me, to, you, know, to, you know, ask you." And he said, oh, "Okay, let's see what you can do." That's really inviting. So I got up on the bandstand and I'm trying to play. I'm not exactly relaxed. And then I look out in front and I see like a whole bunch of guys sitting out there like a jury. And one of them I recognize is uh, Kenny Durham. Because I, you know, anyway, I could actually hear them talking. Like, oh, he, sounds like he practices a lot. I mean, it's pretty funny. So anyway, I passed the audition and I was able to go there and sit in, and I met some people, and then I I went I sat in with Elvin Jones at a place called the uh, Pookie's Pub across from the Half Note, and. Uh, he liked the way I played, and he told Joe Farrell, who's the saxophone part, to uh, send me in when he couldn't make it. And then I be kind of became Joe Farrell's uh, or, um, sub, I guess, and he became a quasi uh, mentor. And I did a lot of gigs for him. And then he, and I—that's how I got into the uh, playing and. Thad Jones, Mel Lewis band, because he was busy, so I did a lot of uh, I started playing with them and Eddie Daniels why don't you come in for me so I, I was doing both chairs I even had to play the Eddie Daniels clarinet parts which I <laughs> at least I, I learned to get a credible sound <laughs> anyway so that well, that's how all that stuff started and uh, one thing would lead to another and then uh, 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 actually you might, this might be interesting. I'm trying. To, my chronology is not good, but my early days in um, New York, uh, I, there was a famous bar called Jim and Andy's, and uh, go out there, and all the musicians would be there. All the guys you saw on the record uh, liner notes were all hanging out there, and most of them were really nice. One, one or two were jerks, but most of them were really cool. Yeah, and so I'm there one one night in Zoot Sims' is the bar, and he's kind of having a great time. And, and he says to me, "He says, man, uh, Clark is rehearsing tonight at, uh, I guess it was at the Half Note." And uh, he said, uh, "I don't really want. I don't feel like doing it. Why don't you do it?" So I went down and rehearsed. I guess it was late at night and. And it was like an all-star Clark Terry's all-star band. They got you know, Phil Woods as lead alto, Danny Bank, Frank West. I mean, it was like I, know, I think Ron Carter was playing bass. I mean, it was like so every Wednesday, I made sure I would be at the same place at the same time, and the same thing would happen. The zoo would say, "Hey man, why don't you do that rehearsal?" So after about four or five of them. <laughs> Phil Wood said, I, "I don't think Zoot really wants to do this. <laughs> You've been rehearsing, so you may as well do the gig." And so that's how I became the only non-all star in Clark Terry's All Star Band, yeah. which was a which was a really great lesson because at that point I wasn't I wasn't sure I, my my style was like I'm kind of messed up. I couldn't I didn't know re- really how I wanted where I wanted to go. <laughs> You know, so, so I I would play solos and they were like out of context, you know. And I I I realized it and I said, man, it's not cool. And so I decided to listen to Clark, and I listened to him play, and then I would try to use that as an to influence how I approached my solos. You know, that they they were in context and they made sense, and I could. I could move them to a certain point, but to come out of the music as opposed to imposing myself on the music, and and that was an important lesson. So I went from a stupid iconoclast to somebody that uh, tried to play music. and So that that was important, and uh, basically that's how I met Toshiko because she was subbing Clark's band one night, and uh, she was looking for a tenor player for a concert, and she she heard me play, and she didn't, she didn't know who I was, and she 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 really liked it, and called her contractor, and he said, "Oh yeah, Luther back and he was Joe Farrell was supposed to do her concert, and he, he went he was he uh, had to go out with that in Mel's band, and so she asked me to do it, and. uh I did the same thing. I, went, I I said yes, but then I went out with that in Mel's band. So anyway, that was that's how we met. But so that was my you know situation. And I somehow I got in. in the, um, I became a member of Duke Pearson's big band, which was a real great. It was like a family kind of feeling. It was like really a great band to play in, and, and Duke was really a special guy, very warm and uh sensitive guy. A player type. <laughs> and, and uh and you know I had a lot of interesting experience. I got a call once to, I think it was in 76. Not 66. I'm talking about 60s. 60, 66. And uh to join Cab Calloway's reunion band. Now, yeah. Think think about that. Yeah. And I showed up yeah. in New Jersey, and I see all these old guys, like old black guys, and, and and I'm trying to figure out why I'm there. And, like, so there was an old, old well, I thought he was old. He wasn't that old now that, and now that I'm older than, much older than he was. He was on the floor doing push-ups with Eddie Bearfield, and we became really tight, and uh, it was a great experience because I really learned a lot about, you know, previous to that, I, I didn't have much band ex- experience. The bands I played in were, I had I played in the commercial. I got a gig with um, Les Les Elgart and then Larry Elgart, and then, you know, it's a certain way to play. And then in Cab Calloway's band, had like lead alto player. His name was George Dorsey. Beautiful sound, and and there was Eddie Barefield and uh, Santa Man Taylor. Garvin Bouchelle, and I realized that music, the way uh, older guys treated the music, was that you saw and what you played, you follow the lead alto player, like especially like on sax oldies, like you kind of like tune into him because the, the written note, the written page, is not exactly the way it's played. It's it's kind of like. Comes the lead alto player solo, and you have to follow him rhythmically and nuance wise and dynamic wise. And you get into a telepathy kind of a certain. Nowadays, everything is written precisely. The younger guys They, they get nervous. Like Frank was played lead alto in our band, and when we moved back to New York, and guys would kind of, well, you know they couldn't get the fact that he didn't play everything precisely, you know, the way it was written. He played it with his own personality, and you have to... But once he did it, he played it the same way every time, which, but you know, it's not a, an academic approach, which too much school creates musicians who, you know, uh, lose this abstract reality. So anyway, that, that's some of my situations, you know, and it was New York was great. I was like the great conservatory, and every time you know I go out with Joe Farrell, and he, he'd say, "Oh man, why don't you sit in with this guy?" And I, I always have my horn, and I get up on the bass and I start playing, and I look up, and Sonny Rollins is, is there. I said, "Oh man, I know he set me up for that." And it's just like you never know who's going to show up, and you better be playing this. You know, as good as you can, and every time you play, it's got to be like the best you can possibly do. It's not, you know, it was a very special time. It's it's changed a lot now. It's come become more formal. It's not the way it used to be, but it was it was a good time to be in New York, and and uh, it was great. I played in a lot of big bands, although I was never I never had a lot of big band experience, but for some reason. I, I did so many bands, like you mentioned. I did Joe Henderson's band, and I did another band, I did Chuck Israels band, because I could play the flute, and he had, he wrote a lot of flute stuff for me to play, and so that was interesting for me. And so that was my, my that was my early days in New York. In 1972, I moved to Los Angeles. We moved to Los Angeles, like. Uh, around 69, uh, Arnie Lawrence, saxophone player, he, he kind of recommended me to do this gig with uh, Doc Severinsen, which was not a great musically. was pretty sad, but my income went from 4,000 a year to 19,000 a year, which is you know pretty ju- pretty big jump, like almost five times. I went from mere Survival to be able to actually buy a stereo system or something and actually get a credit card. So, anyway, i i, I was I was doing that and a couple other kind of things like like Dick Cabot and then I, you know, I would sub on the Tonight Show, which we weren't supposed to do because it was a it was a, a staff situation. But anyway, I did that and. I was I was playing a lot of people's projects and then and you know playing like kind of like the Black Revolution got kind of strong and it was difficult for white white jazz musicians unless you were you know really older established and start to get you know it was really tough so it was it was like it got to be a little bit too much resistance so friend of mine, John Williams bass player uh, uh John B. Williams, bass player. He moved to uh L A with with Doc Sevens and band and he says, Yeah, hey, why don't you come out, man? It's great. I'm playing all the time and blah 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 So I said, Well might be might be a, a good thing to do, you know. So we moved to Los Angeles, and because I was guaranteed a certain amount of nights on The Tonight Show, I quickly realized that LA was not the jazz utopia. It was—it was like it fell short compared to being in New York. so It was very frustrating. But the good thing about it was that it forced me to uh, develop my own my own realities instead of playing in everybody's band, I had to try to create my own world, and fortunately, I had uh, some good experiences with Shelly Mann. Uh, we had a, supposedly a co-op group, but um, Shelley was really the leader. Did that for, I, mean, I don't know, for quite a while, and uh, I met Billy Higgins. We started doing stuff with him, and, I had a trio I I was still working on my trio that's a that's a you know I I missed that point in 67 I started my first trio in New York but anyway kept on you know doing that doing that project and all of a sudden I became an entity and then the big the big band happened so all this stuff happened in LA it was like it was like it was like turning a negative into a positive so when Instead of giving in to the, you know, layback, you know, kind of like uh, television music reality of Los Angeles, uh, just forced myself to uh, create my own world, and, and and so it basically turned out to be a positive thing. So when I came back to New York, I actually had an identity. Yeah, it wasn't just a guy that played in this band and that band and that band, you know you know, then in 82, just had enough of Los Angeles, enough of fighting, so, went back to New York, reestablished a big band, and, uh, anyway, closer proximity to Europe, so started to do more stuff over there, and, uh, uh, did some recordings, I did a few recordings for Concord Records, and, uh, whatever, so, uh, you know, and I continue to go uh, back to Japan every year, at least once, in certain situations. So, a lot of you know, I guess a lot of stuff went down, and here I am back here, still, still working on
1: it. Yeah, that you—you you answered a lot of questions that I was kind of built up with your bio. <laughs> one, <laughs> which is awesome. That's good. One, Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one thing I did want to ask you about is your wife's the jazz orchestra. So she goes jazz orchestra. How what's the history of that? How did that form and what's been kind of the history of that?
2: Well I can give you the history because it's my it was my idea. Like I was telling you when we moved to LA, it was kind of boring. I, I I would be invited to play in all these bands because they knew that I had played in you know all you know you know uh Thad's band and uh you know uh Duke Pearson Clark. I played in all those bands and they said so they, they would call me to play, and the music would be so boring and uninteresting from a jazz standpoint. So I said to tosco, you know, Tosco, you have, I know you wrote some, she had a town hall concert in, I think it was 67, I, and she played about five, she wrote five charts for a big band, and I said, I know you have some music, uh, I can call some guys and we can get together and. The Union Hall in Los Angeles, the Union uh, had uh, rehearsal facilities, so you have to pay. They charge you, believe it or not, 50 cents, not 50 cents in the slang vernacular, 50 cents, half a dollar yeah. for a two hours and 45 minutes. So... We would rehearse Monday. I mean Wednesday at ten o'clock. I I called a bunch of guys that I knew and started playing her charts. It was really weird because, you know, people out there they couldn't relate to the music at first. You know, they, they were used to like playing like. They said most of the big bands that were got together to rehearse are like what we call kick bands in a sense, just like not that hard music, just have fun. And this was required in a lot of concentration <laughs> complaints. Oh, you can't play that. So she would say, No, I, I, I you know Dizzy played it, and I, I didn't get it from nowhere. Just it's it's been played before, basically. <laughs> so anyway. We one thing led to another. We started to develop a core of uh, musicians that w- w- really accepted the challenge and could deal with a woman telling them what to do. And it kind of like we do these little door gigs in Pasadena, a place called the Ice House. And I'd be, you know, I'd lose. I guaranteed them a few bucks, or I'd lose some bread, and it didn't matter because I was working. And Anyway, one thing led to another and we 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 had a the band finally came together and we made a recording for a Japanese company RVC believe it or not for a budget of $3,000. Okay. Wow. everything. Wow. Okay. And we made this recording in a small eight track studio. And it was the album was Kogan, which immediately sold 30,000 copies right off. And it was like one of the big hits of all time. And it was, especially for big bands, they didn't, Japanese don't particularly like big bands. So anyway, that was, we had the recording and uh, we had the, the record hadn't come, come out yet. And Tosco played the, uh, tape, I guess it was a cassette, believe it or not, for John Lewis. And John Lewis really was impressed and he was musical director at Monterey and he hired, he got us a gig there and in those days, like 70s, early 70s, jazz festivals were really big things like the international press would be there and you know, you play at a major festival and it's all over the place. You know, I mean, not now. Nobody really cares, but uh, in those days it was it was really big. So we got a lot of it was a new band and blah blah blah, and we got a lot of coverage. One thing led to another and started to get gigs and tours, which we would lose money on because I didn't know how to do it properly. And but. Anyway, one thing led to another, and it became, and we did, you know, several recordings, and so that's how that started, and uh, when we we moved back to New York, decided to change the name, I told her to change the name, because I was getting credit for stuff I didn't do, I thought it was really a drag, you know, they were assuming that I wrote stuff, I I didn't write anything, a couple tunes maybe, but... uh, I just wanted to make sure that it was clear that it's Toshiko's band featuring me. So that was what happened. Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra, because someone in one of the, I think we were playing at Lush Life, a club called Lush Life, and whoever booked us thought that it would be, sound better to be Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra, although we didn't have a string section. But anyway, <laughs> 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 so... Then everybody started using a jazz orchestra after that. But uh, no, so that was um, that was very important. It was it was an important project for for the music. I mean, uh, I don't think the American and European audience actually has full appreciation of what that music is and what it became because a lot of the records never came out here. And yeah. the ones that did come out were never uh, promoted properly. And so, uh, history will eventually point out the truth that the stuff that we did was, uh, you know, in, in a way, um, revolutionary.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, over your career, you played with so many people. So, this is kind of a two a two-part question here. Is there anybody that you want to play with that's out today, and is there anybody that you didn't get to play with that you really did want to get with?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. I'm I'm somebody who I'd want to play with now. There's some people that, well, put it this way, a lot of people people that I play with, I had the the opportunity to play with, I miss, (laughs) if that makes any sense. I still miss, you know, there's nobody to replace Elvin Jones. The feeling to play with him is so special that nobody comes close to that. Uh, It's a special thing. Billy Higgins, uh, I I, I certainly, you know, miss miss playing with him. Uh, Danny Richmond. These are drummers come to mind. Danny Richmond, another one that unsung heroes. Uh, People that are gone that really respected and enjoyed playing with Jimmy Nepper another one, another unheralded great musician. And, you know, the people I w- would have liked to play with, I guess there's too many to even mention. I mean, I mean, I couldn't even... So, And I had an experience playing with Dave Holland in a duo situation many years ago, which was really incredible. I would love to do that again in some form. Um, yeah. A lot of musicians that I... I used to play a lot with Joey Barron, and uh, we talk about playing together again, and you know it doesn't seem to happen for logistical reasons or whatever. Um, I mean, a lot. I, I mean, I'd have to think about it. <laughs> a lot like you know, a lot of the, a lot of the musicians today. You know, I enjoyed playing with uh, a couple times I played with Joe Lovano, and you know, he's he's very communicative, and uh, it's fun to play with people that can communicate. A lot of musicians on the scene today are locked into their little thing that they do, and they can't have a conversation, a musical conversation. So it's like it's always fun to play with people that you know you can like talk talk to. I I mean, kind of you kind of play and you kind of converse, and you you know you're actually there's a communication that's kind of become a lost uh, way of playing. So I, I enjoy playing with people. Um, that I, I always get that feeling when I play with Randy Bricker, because yeah. we we kind of grew up together in a sense, and although he's five years younger than me, but when we do play once in a while, it's just like we never stop playing together. It's just like it's, there's a certain communication that happens, so I don't know I'd like to I'd have to think about the people i would i mean I would love to play with Duke Ellington, of course, you know, yeah. I almost did. Clark Terry was trying to get me to the gig when uh, uh who left the band? Uh, Jimmy Hamilton left the band or somebody left the band? And uh no uh I don't know who left the band, but uh Harold Ashby got the gig which was perfectly correct. But anyway, I would have liked to have done that. It would have been
3: it,
2: it would have been interesting to say the least. Yeah. So that would I would love to play with Monk. Yeah, um, I think that would have been a great learning experience. Um, I guess I'd have to think about it all. I, you know, on the top of my head, I played one tune with Louis Armstrong, and he wasn't even playing; with was singing. But it was, felt great. I mean, like uh, just to play a few notes behind him, it was kind of special. I played, yeah. uh, I played one concert with Count Basie. Wasn't his band, but he was. It was a band. It was Al Cohen's big band, and Count Basie was 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 a tribute to him. And he played, and he was played all of his music, and and Al let me play most of the solos, which is, and I could feel. I could actually feel Basie's. You know, his thing was so strong. That, I mean, you could really feel that special energy, and you know the, the quality character I mean a swing yeah. I had a I did an album I did a do what album with John Lewis many years ago and that was very important to me cuz it was a great experience playing with him he he's underestimated in many ways and he, he also has you know his he has a great unrecognized rhythmic feel people don't think he much about it because he's understated but Really, quite special, and developed a relationship with him after that recording, so anyway there I guess there's tons of uh, situations that would be nice to be in so
1: over six decades of dedicating your life to jazz and everything that you've seen in a wide swath of jazz history, why do you love jazz?
2: I don't know, I don't know if I do or don't. <laughs> it's an interesting question i I don't even I, you know I'm not like. Okay, my drummer, Mark Taylor. He's always listening to records and all, constantly. I mean, he's, he's got headset, earphones on all the time, and he's listening to all, all kinds of stuff. I found myself not, and which brings into question what I don't know. My feeling. See, I'm I'm a more I'm a participant. I'm not a voyeur. Um, maybe that's one way to put it. It's like I like to be doing it. So, I love playing. I don't like Coleman Hawkins was the same way. He he didn't listen much. He listened to classical mu- music most of the time, or he would whatever he heard was live. He would go out and hear stuff live. So I mean i i I love I love jazz music, and i and I love the certain elements of it. I find myself hearing less and less of it lately, and. Which which leads me to be you know that's why I, I hesitated a little bit because so I don't hear the the values that I you know I hear I don't hear a certain energy commitment and swing if it's one of a better word uh, and extension of traditional values I always everybody asks me who I think the next great player is or whatever. So, just show me somebody who takes a tradition and expands it and not destroys it then that'll that'll be the person that i I would be behind because most of the time it, nowadays there's a lot of European influences taking over latin all kinds all kinds of you know stuff that doesn't that kind of takes away from from the essential you know spirit of the music or in an extreme situation, uh my friend Pete LaRocca who passed a couple of years ago, he he refused to play Latin anything Latin. He said that it take it, it's corrupting you know swing and jazz. Mm-hmm. And he would he wouldn't do anything. If he would play a tune that was a Latin tune he would play it in four four. I mean he would just, that was that, that was the extreme. He was the opposite of dizzy, I guess. So yeah. anyway, it's kind of interesting. So I, I, you know, basically, uh, if, if I'm if I'm looking for some inspiration, unfortunately, I usually have to go back to the root. Like if okay, a simple one. Like if, my, if I feel like I'm not happy with where I'm, my sound is. See, I have to put on a. I put on the record. I put on the bridge of uh, Don Bias playing uh, these foolish things, and I said, well, okay, it's cool, and I'm fine. Because <laughs> like, uh, in, in, most of my inspiration comes from the older, essential players, and and so that gives me inspiration. Uh, I haven't found a lot in most of the most of the younger players, but uh I think jazz like on uh, this on the top of my head, I think jazz used to be more more relevant in a sense it was like uh it was a revolutionary music in a way
3: mm-hmm. and
2: it 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 kind of like it was a music of freedom and it was music that reached people's soul now it's becoming entertainment music either entertainment music or quasi intellectual music. Uh it's lost a lot of its uh vitality. Like it's funny if I hear uh, I hear a group trying to play nineteen sixty kind of like free kind of free freer kind of music and it sounds so old fashioned because it's totally irrelevant. I I can get more in more inspiration to hear somebody play a, a you know beautiful song or something that that's not trying to prove anything but oh, but sh- exposes the player's soul. A lot a lot of times I'll go hear a young young band and they play all original tunes and, and I say, do you ever think of playing one standard tune? Because nobody can hear nobody can tell what your what your Soul is what your value is. If you're playing like, uh, you know, sophomore or arrangements that, uh, you know, you would do it for a school project. Right. I said, oh, well, we can't, we can't add anything to it. I said, of course, that's not the point. You add, who are you? You, you I mean, how many people? How many times has body and soul been played? Yeah. Just because Coleman Hawkins has a uh, definitive version doesn't mean, make sure, mean that you can't do your own, express yourself through that song or whatever. Uh, and you don't have to reharmonize. You just have to let yourself let, you know, let your true essence emerge through that and people can actually hear your value. Yeah. uh, Anyway, that's, uh, That's that's something I think is important. Absolutely.
1: So I got one final question for you, and it's this. After all this time that you've spent in jazz, all the many miles that you've gone down, how would you like the world to remember your contribution to music?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I basically, you know, I I, I basically, you know, uh, try to create... My own voice and add it add it to uh the other millions well thousands of voices and that i'm you know i'm a person with of integrity and musical integrity, and try to you know cherish and expand the tradition and as a flute player, I think i've uh broken new lots of new ground i Some of the stuff I did 30 years ago has never been, uh, you you know, what's the right word? It's never been, (laughs) it's never been surpassed. Yeah. Uh, I think I've I've opened up a lot of doors, maybe not getting quite the recognition that for whatever reason I could have had. Uh, However, I, I... I, you know, I like the world to know that I, I am was dedicated to making my little contribution, and, and that's you know, obviously, that's all basically all we can do. So let your voice be heard, and you know, and and be and you know, play with integrity, and don't follow the follow the trends and whatever. Just maintain a steadfast approach to excellence.
1: That's a perfect way to kind of put, a, put an end to the interview. Lou, hey, thank you for your story, your time. It, it was beautiful, man. I
2: really appreciate it. I appreciate all the music. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate your, your efforts.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to a very special edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series, where we give you a bit of insight into the legends and the players that give us all that jazz from all over the world. And thanks to Lou for his history, his graciousness, his music, and above all, his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends.
3: Neon Jazz.